Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles, would you, to Hebrews chapter 13, as we'll draw your attention to verse 8 in a Bible study that I've entitled, Grace Brings Stability to Your Life. Grace Brings Stability to Your Life. And in our previous studies, we've learned how to love and to serve our spiritual leaders, the ones that God has placed in our life, the pastors, the overseers, the leaders, men and women that God has specifically chosen not only to place in our lives, but also to place over our lives. Remember we learned in verse seven, we're to remember those who rule over you that have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. Then we jump down to verse 17 and we learned, obey those that rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And then finally, we looked at verse 24. Greet all those who rule over you, and all the saints and those from Italy greet you. Then we spent some time in the book of Thessalonians, learning what it was a different facet of the joy that we derive as we learn to support our pastors and leaders. We learned about Moses and Aaron and Hur and Joshua as each person did their part. Holding up the arms of Moses, there was victory, which is all that really what we want together. We want to lock shields and experience the victory that's ours by faith. We don't want to fight one another. We don't want to go at each other. We want to remember that we're on the same team. Now we're going to come back to from that season of Bible study to these little exhortations and encouragements that Paul, I believe the author of Hebrews, is giving to the Hebrew believers. Remember, you're looking at an audience of believers that have left their old covenant, they left Judaism because they've embraced their Savior, their Messiah. But the temple is still standing, and the worship is still ongoing, and the sacrifice are still being offered. And the smoke and the incense and all the ritual and religion is there still among them. And they're weighing the reality of their lives, what they've lost compared to what they're feeling, compared to the choices that are before them. And that's what the whole book is about. After laying all of these foundational teachings, and I I think, remember, the, the theme of Hebrews is the theme for you and the theme for me. No matter what we're facing or what we're going through, Jesus Christ is superior to anything and everything that you may turn to. He is greater than the law. He's greater than the sacrifices. He's greater than the festivals. He fulfills them all, and he is sufficient. He is sufficient for you to trust your life with. Which leads us to verse eight now. Notice, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, when you're under spiritual attack, when you're thinking about giving up, when you wanna go backwards, when our minds are filled with all kinds of confusion and difficulty, our minds can also be filled with unbiblical thoughts about Jesus we will begin to misunderstand or misrepresent 
the true character and nature of Jesus Christ. It, it, it works like this. I've changed my life. Circumstances in my life have changed. Uh, my pain threshold might have changed. I'm going through this. I've changed my mind about life. Therefore, Jesus must have changed his mind about me. And you begin to think that maybe Jesus has abandoned you, turned his back upon you. We often refer to this as being mad at God because of the circumstances of our lives. But the Bible declares to us that Jesus Christ is the same. He's unchangeable. He's the same yesterday as he is today, as he will be forever. You can trust him. You can build your life upon him. He is unchanging. It is impossible for Jesus to change. He will never change. He alone is the solid rock upon which your life and mine is built. And especially in a time like now where our culture is shifting, you're living during a season of one of the most radical culture shifts that we've seen. Now remember, when culture shifts, it's just from one sin to another. It's just from one evil to another evil. It's just from one sin to a greater sin or to a greater evil, where there's darkness and then culture shifts to a greater darkness. But God has reserved for us in a dark culture the light of the gospel living through his church. What did Jesus say? He said to you, he said to me, you are the salt and the light. You and I, we're light in a dark place. And as you live in this culture shift, as you experience some of the most devastating, difficult things that anyone has ever experienced in the world, you know that Jesus Christ, he is unchanged by all of this. He remains the same. You did not make a mistake when you repented of your sins and dedicated your entirety of your life to following Jesus. He hasn't changed. He will not forsake you. He will not leave you. Don't be distracted by the things surrounding you, thinking now somehow Jesus is unstable. You might be unstable. Jesus is not unstable. He's reliable. Notice in verse 9. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that your heart be established by grace not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. So these are a couple of verses that have an easy part to them and a difficult part to them. Let's deal with the easy part first. In light of the unchanging nature of Jesus, in light of his reliability, in light of his faithfulness, in light of his care and concern for your life, in light of no matter what you're facing today, Jesus remains as trustworthy today as he has always been. He is yesterday, today, and forever, unchanging. Be careful that you're not carried about with various and strange teachings. That's what the word doctrine means. You can circle doctrine and just put neat teachings. And oh, are there many, many various and strange teachings today. And here's how it works. When you're wrestling and when you're battling and when you're going through things, you become vulnerable. You're in a weakened state. You're in a place of great vulnerability. And the way that you stay away from and the way that you're not carried about by 
various strange teachings and doctrines is that you stay away from various and strange teachers because doctrines come from teachers. And you want to be very careful not to present yourself to strange teachers who teach you strange things in a time of vulnerability in your life. Because that's what you're looking for. You're looking for stability. You're looking for an answer. You, you pull up the laptop, you put out Google, and you go, what's going on in the world today? Well, with just that simple question, you're gonna have a lot of people that wanna tell you what's going on in the world today and wanna give to you a perspective that may not reflect the unchanging nature of Jesus Christ. They may use part of the truth. Hey, the world's going crazy, out of control. That's true. But then how they apply that to your life is very instructive and very important. You're to stay away from it. Why? He says, for it is good that your heart be established by grace. That the stability of your life would come by the grace of God. The stability of your rock-solid faith that is built upon the unchanging Christ you're careful not to be listening to those teachings that would undermine your faith. Paul would put it this way to the Ephesian believers in chapter four, verse 13. It says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we might grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Being careful not to be carried about with all these winds of doctrine that are really just a, an invention of the trickery of the cunning of men and women that want to take advantage of us in tough times. It is good, Paul says, that your hearts be established by grace. And he uses the word heart on purpose here, I believe. Most of the time in the Bible when the heart is referenced, it's not referencing the muscle that's pumping in your chest right now. It's representing the very seat of your emotional experience, how you relate to life, how you feel life, the, the very sense of what brings you calm and assurance to the very sense of what freaks you out and makes you and me so anxious and worried. He says it's good that the substance and stability of your life comes from the grace of God. Not just in knowing the grace of God, but in receiving the grace of God and living in the grace of God. And then notice what he contrasts it with. He contrasts for this audience, he contrasts it that your heart would be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Now, he's not speaking about what, what you eat for lunch or the, the type of food you might be preparing for dinner. No, he's talking about a form of legalism is what we would use today. That in your relationship with God, it's not what you eat that matters. Jesus said, you know, you just eat and what comes into your mouth just gets processed and sent right back out. Instead, it's how you eat. 
You make a dietary decision for your own health. That's not what he's referring to here. What he's referring to here is that people would come upon your life in a time of vulnerability and say, you're not doing Christianity right. You're not doing it right. You're eating the wrong things. You're doing the wrong things. And here are the lists of rules and regulations for you to follow in order for you to be a good Christian. Here, it's not suggestions on how to live your life in Christ, but rather it's commandments of men that would cause you to be unstable because you could never, ever keep a long list of rules and regulations. Nobody's life is established by following a list. Nobody. Because when failure comes, you're immediately unstable, but rather all of us are established by the grace of God. If you'd like to write in your Bible, circle that word established. In the original language, it means to be sure, to be fixed, to be firm, and it speaks of a reliability that leads to security. That's what grace will do in your life. When you understand and recognize day by day the sufficiency of God's grace in your life, what it does is it takes you back to thinking, what exactly do you deserve you know, there's a lot of speed. We, we live in a culture today, especially in, in our culture, we live in a culture and a society that has trained us to demand our rights. Fight for your rights. You might even hear that. Fight for your rights. Demand your rights. Really? Is that what you really, do you really want what you deserve? I want what I deserve. Don't, if anybody asks for that, give us a minute to get 10 feet away from you and just back up. Do you really want what you deserve? Do you remember when you lived in a condition of your life when in any moment you could have got what you deserve, I for one am happy I am not receiving what I deserve. Instead, I receive the grace of God, that God has exchanged his life for mine, that he has forgiven my sins, he has taken them, and he has removed them from me as far as the east is from the west. That even when people want to remind me of them, even when the enemy wants to condemn me over my past, the Holy Spirit will remind me, no, no, Ed, those sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not because of your good works, Ed. Not because you're even any better of a person than you were before you were saved. But because of my finished work in your life. That's what established. That's how I, I'm confident. That's how I can stand here confident here before you right now. How I can speak to you on the radio. I can speak to you online. Not because of my own good works and my own good deeds. I wouldn't have the authority to sit, stand here if it was dependent upon my perfect life. I live an imperfect life, but I serve a perfect God. And my heart is established because of his faithfulness in my life. My heart is established. It's sure. It's firm. It's fixed. I think of that word fixed or the idea of staying put. It reminds me of the teaching of Jesus, remember, in John chapter 15, when he spoke about standing firm and staying put. Remember what he said? He talked about us abiding in him and he abiding in us, where we're not running to and fro looking for satisfaction here, looking for happiness there, but rather our satisfaction, our joy, our happiness, our contentment comes as we stay put in Jesus, as we stay put in this newfound relationship with him. So to the Hebrew believers and to us now, Paul is saying, you made the right choice. Some of you still need to make that choice. Some of you need to still come clean with the sin that has separated you from God. In a few moments, I'll give you that opportunity to repent of your sins and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you were to choose to do that in responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, 
It is a response, by the way. No one comes to the Father unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit. And if God has been drawing you and drawing you and drawing you, now you have the opportunity to go, you know, this is my life. And I am ready to turn away from my past. It will be immediately that God will establish your heart by grace, not by works. Holiness is never produced by the law. It's always produced by the grace of God. False teachings will bring instability in your life. It will cause you to say things and think things that you would have never, other, never ever otherwise had in your mind had you not chosen to be carried about by various and strange doctrines. Then he says in verse 10, the more challenging part of this section, he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. That's interesting. This is a reference to the altar of sacrifice that at the time of this writing and to this particular audience still existed. The temple was still in Jerusalem. They were still going through all of the sacrifices, the daily sacrifices, the yearly sacrifices. You, you could say, proverbially, you could look over your back, you could see the incense, you could see the smoke rising, you could see the glorious temple that was high up on, on the mount, mountaintop there, and it was all there beckoning these Hebrew believers to go backwards. Why? Because they had lost everything. It's just something we haven't experienced. As much as we've lost, perhaps, as much as we paid the price for following Christ, we haven't paid to the price of losing. For a believer in the first century, this is what they dealt with. They, they lost their family, immediately ostracized from their family. They, they were placed outside of the community, which means they didn't have a place to live anymore. They didn't have a viable source of income anymore. They became mocked and ridiculed. They weren't at family dinners anymore. They didn't have their friends anymore. They lived basically with their new family, the family of Christ. But it was wearing on them, as any prolonged trial would. It wears on you. It breaks down your defenses. And then you begin to assess, maybe I can help the situation. I think it's a question so many of us have asked. Maybe I can help the situation. Maybe I can move it along. Sometimes it's asked in the context of, you know, I want life to be easier than it is right now. And I wonder what my options are, even if I have to justify some of my bad behavior so I can experience a little more comfort and ease. Wherever they are right now, we know that they were considering leaving Jesus Christ and going back to a system of religion in the direction of their lives. Perhaps gaining back that which they lost. And the whole letter was written, hey, don't go backwards. What you're looking for is not backwards. What you're looking for is already yours. It's already yours by faith in Jesus. He fulfilled it all. But he also puts a little statement in here, the altar of which we worship the altar by which the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world was sacrificed on. That altar, he says, with the temple in the background, he says that we have an altar from those who serve the tabernacle. They have no right to eat. And what he's saying is, those that are going through the motions in Judaism right now, having rejected their Messiah, they have no right to enjoy the privileges that you have in Christ Jesus. And he's basically saying again, you have it so much better than what they have. They have no right there. The only way to worship at this altar is by being born again. 
and ex- receiving Jesus. And so Paul's saying, look, don't go backwards. You're going back to something that's inferior. And I wonder how many here today are considering about going backwards, maybe going back to the bottle, maybe going back to your, the drugs that assuage your pain, or maybe going back to an old relationship that hurt you, but you're willing to try it again. I wonder how many of you are considering even going back to some formalized religion or maybe just going back and saying, Christianity doesn't work for me. Look, you're going backwards in life and it will bring great pain to you. You have what you've been looking for all along. It's already yours by faith. Grace establishing your life. He he talks about verse 11, the bodies of those beasts, the animals that were sacrificed, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin. Remember that was at, we've looked at this in depth in previous studies in Hebrews, but remember the once a year the high priest would bring the blood and spread it on the mercy seat on the top of the tabernacle or the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, right? Once a year. So he would spread the blood. He would say, this is the for the covering of sin for one more year of everyone in this covenant. Then he would come out with his bloody hands and he would lay his hands on the goat we know him as the scapegoat, and then he would have then represent not only are they been covered, but as the blood would be on the goat and they let the goat run away, that scapegoat would remind everybody watching him, and he also is taking our sins away. Looking forward to the Lamb of God that wouldn't just cover sin, but take them away. He says that these beasts, they're burned on the outside. They're outside the camp. That They've served their purpose, they're outside the camp. They're not in the camp, they're outside of the camp. The blood stays, the animal goes. And this is a reminder of the sweet savoring offerings that already was referred to by the writer of Hebrews. They became food for the priests. But also, the sin offerings. The sin offerings were offered, and they weren't to be eaten. You could take those carcasses and you would throw them out. They weren't to be eaten. So that the Lord Jesus Christ is not only the sweet savoring offering on on which we feed, but he's also the sin offering as which establishes the principle for which our unity and relationship with Jesus exists. The sin offerings were always burned outside the camp. And what the camp was to the Israelite in the wilderness, to the Jew of this first century, was the city of Jerusalem outside the camp, outside the city. Now, if you ever have the privilege of coming, and I hope I can take you to Israel, our last stop, our last stop on our trip is the garden tomb. And the garden tomb is a place that represents, many believe, the place where Jesus was laid. It has strong evidence that it could be very well the place that they laid Jesus Christ after he died. And one of the things that they will do is they'll pull out a visual aid and they'll show you the first century borders of Jerusalem. And they'll show you where the walls sat compared to where they are today. And then they'll show you where the garden tomb sits outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And that's one of the evidence. They say, look, this place is outside the city of Jerusalem. And this garden tomb borders a piece of property that's being used right now as an Arab bus station. And we usually go to the garden tomb later in the day. It's like our last stop before we have dinner and get back on a plane and come home. And the buses are there honking and just treating it like the disrespect they would have in the first century. 
And then a backing up on the back end of the Arab bus station is a hill. Don't think of a hill like Rocky Mountains. Like it's a hill, it's truly not too high. There's a hill and in the side of the hill there, if you look carefully at a couple of caves that are there still, it's eroded a lot now, but the, still, the two eyes still are very evident on, on this hill. This hill they called Golgotha, the place of the skull. The place where Jesus was crucified is referred to as Golgotha, the place of the skull. We have some older pictures. I have, I have a picture I took on a much earlier tour before it was eroded so bad where it is very evident this hill looks like a skull. And I believe the Arab community believes it's such because above it on the hill, they put an Arab cemetery, which they know would be a desecration to anything Jewish. So there's an Arab cemetery on the top that's bur- that's, that has a wall up at the top of the hill with some profanities and some, some really bad things being said about Christianity and about Jews. So you've got it here outside the city, a little wall where the Roman road would come right before it, just like they crucified on the side of Roman roads. And part of the proof that they'll tell you at their presentation is this place could very well be it. And one of the reasons is Calvary's, the, the, the hill of Golgotha is right there. The Roman road would be right there. The old city walls would be right there. And we are right here. And it's fascinating. But there's even something greater. Listen to what the Bible says now. So we've got outside the city. Therefore, verse 12, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. The offering that suffered outside the gate was the sin offering. Jesus outside the gate, outside the city, suffered for the forgiveness of sins, yours and mine. He followed and fulfilled the Old Testament law. Therefore, verse 13 Let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Verse 13 is very relevant for you and me today. Very important that we understand the instruction. Paul is telling believers, you are outsiders. It is your choice to be an outsider. It is your choice to follow Jesus wherever he goes. And Jesus went outside the camp as the offering for sin. He suffered outside the camp, outside the city. He suffered uniquely. And you and I are commanded to go forth to him. You see, when you side with Jesus, you become an outsider. Everything in us, though, cries out to be an insider. There is this wave today of of wanting the church to be accepted in the world, wanting the church to be respected in the world, wanting the church to have some kind of rights in the world. Listen, the world does not like the church. The world is not for the church. And even if you get any hints like that, where the world might throw the church a bone here and there, that's all it is. The world hates Jesus. You got that? The world hates Jesus. And the Jesus said, Jesus said this, if they hate you, don't be, I'm paraphrasing, don't be surprised because they hated me 
before they hated you. And there's just this sense, whether it's individually or even corporately as the church, like we want to be accepted. We want to fit in. Even to some degree, we want to look like the world, sound like the world, because we, that's the way it is. That's how you're going to win the loss. You're going to win the loss by being like the world. That's not true. You're an outsider. The Bible doesn't say, therefore, let us go forth like the world. It says, no, you and I need to make a conscious choice to go to Jesus, and he's outside the camp. He's outside the camp. He's not inside. He's outside. It's very clear, the plan and purpose that God had for Jesus. Our calling is to go forth to him, to leave our past behind and follow Jesus. But here's the thing. It's very clear and clarified for us. We are to go to Jesus, and you've got to mark those last three words, bearing his reproach. Bearing his reproach. Suffering like he suffered. Enduring what he endured. Suffering his reproach. There is a reproach associated with following Jesus. That if you're not willing to accept, then you're not going to find yourself following Jesus very much. You're just going to pick the happy parts. You're going to pick the nice parts. You're going to pick the parts that you like, and you're not going to bear his reproach. It is required that you and I bear his reproach. I mean, you think of, you think of what Jesus endured for you and me for the forgiveness of sin. I mean, they beat this man mercilessly. They beat him to an ounce of his death. They, they took him, they beat him so badly and, and so horrifically that he was unrecognizable. They spat on him. They mocked him, made fun of him. They, they took his clothes and ripped them up and gambled for them. They talked about him in a mocking way. They hired people to lie about him in court. The official courts of the day, they hired people to lie about him. They put him before the people the, and they said, okay, look, look, it's my custom. This was the government, by the way. This is my custom. I'm a really good man. I'm a really good government leader. Hey, I'm going to let you guys choose who you want to let go. You can choose this perfect man who's never done anything wrong and all he's done is help your community, love you guys, heal you guys, feed you guys, tell you about the love of God or this murderer. And who did the people choose? They took the murderer, reproach. But you know, there's still something besides hanging him on a cross, hanging there in his last final words, words of forgiveness and love, but there's something still that, you know, all of that is hard to conceive because we weren't there, but to the best of our ability, we, we process it. But there's something personally that just is always troubling to me, even to this day. And that's the crown of thorns. I mean, really. A crown of thorns. And don't think of a crown of thorns like putting on a baseball hat. You know, when I was younger, I used to put on the baseball hat and I would just put it on the back of my head. I wouldn't put it down on my forehead. I'd just put it on the back of my head. And I'd just kind of put it on and flip it on, play ball. And no, 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 no. The crown of thorns was placed deep into the skull of this broken, bloodied, unrecognizable God in human flesh. And it wasn't just put on, you know, the, another thing you'll see, you go to Israel with us, we'll show you the type of thorns there were. They weren't just little thorns on your own rose bushes here, which would have been bad enough. But they are an inch, two inches long, sharp and thick, and it was twisted. It was put onto his head and then twisted into his head. I, I, don't, I don't understand that. I mean, I get the theological part. I understand he claimed to be a king, so they're going to give him a crown. I get that. 
But what kind of evil does that? And Jesus, he invites us to come outside the city to bear that reproach with him. But how many of us would be willing? I mean, we said we were. When we heard about the forgiveness of our sins, we heard about being born again and the eternal life with him, we said we were willing. But then things started happening in our lives and we're like, maybe I'm not so willing anymore. I want to assert my rights. I want what I have. What kind of message does that send to a world that's still mocking and spitting on Jesus today? Where his own church isn't standing up with him and for him, representing the kind of love and care and concern that he had. That we, we represent as salt and light in this world. But if we can get caught up in things and not bear his reproach, the Bible couldn't be clearer to bear his reproach. It couldn't be clearer that life is going to be hard and challenging and difficult and unfair and unjust, especially toward followers of Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. But our response is indicative of where our heart is. Are we willing to bear the reproach so that whatever comes our way, we recognize that our sole purpose on the earth is to love people and bring them and fill heaven. That's our goal. Our goal is to be to the death messengers of Jesus Christ. That's our goal. Why? He says right here in verse 14, we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. See, the continuing city is like, well, man, this is home. This is life. This is it. This is all there is. But but Paul says, no, you don't get it. God has called you to a higher calling. This world is not your home. Peter would say, I'm just a pilgrim passing through. Jesus would say, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If if it weren't so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. Why? Because I'm coming again to return and you're going to come with me and live with me forever. This is not our continuing city. This is not it. This is temporary. This is a temporary existence for us. This is not our continuing city. Like Abraham in Hebrews earlier, remember? It said that he was waiting for that city whose builder and maker is God. And so there is an eternal aspect of your life that includes the reproach of Christ. I just find that so many, myself included at times, just not willing to pay that price. It's exhausting and it's challenging and it's difficult. And who likes feeling like things are unfair all the time? I was talking to a sister recently about some things going on in her life and a decision she had to make. And she was saying, but Pastor Ed, if I make this decision, it just feels so wrong. It's just wrong that they're making me do this and they want me to do this and it's so unjust and it's so, and I pause and I said, hey, listen, listen, whatever the decision you make, don't lose that feeling because it is wrong. It is is unjust. It is giving you a hunger for a world to come, a a time when Jesus returns, where, where he will make every wrong right and he will right every injustice. And if you ever lose, you know, this world, it's so unfair, it's so wrong, I I feel so discriminated against, and here I am as a Christian, they're treating me. If you ever lose that feeling, then you're probably very comfortable in a city that will not continue. And comfortable, comfort and ease, if you read the Bible carefully, comfort and ease has not served the followers of God very well over the years. Comfort and ease brings us to a place of Well, you know, life is good. Enjoy it. Everything's going to be fine. 
day by day, week by week, and before you know it, your life passes you by and you've done nothing eternally significant because you've been comfortable. So consider this as we head out. You look at the difficulties that we're, that we're facing and you know, the Bible says that we're to approach, we're to follow Jesus in his reproach. It doesn't say we're supposed to like it or enjoy it. Even Jesus, we learned earlier, he despised the shame. It's not like, oh, yay, we're going through it. But, you know, there's a great difference between loss of privileges and persecution. There's a lot, there's a big difference. Persecution is a much deeper, deeper disdain for your life rather than just losing privileges. And even so, we, who can really take privileges away from us in Christ? Why? Grace establishes our hearts. <laughs> it's like, what can the world really do to the believer? The world can destroy the body, but not the soul. The, the world can do a lot. He can, they can terrorize and they can hurt the body, but not the soul. And when you have learned to live your life in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lusts of your flesh. And you will embrace the challenges in your life along the way, understanding that God is bringing you to a place of weakness. Because the place of weakness is your strongest place. The place of weakness is where you belong. Listen, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, listen to what it says. It says, we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Can I ask you a question? How will you ever understand the sufficiency of Christ if you always get things your way? If you're always having exactly what you want? That, that brings about this feeling that you're sufficient for yourself. But grace teaches us none of us are sufficient for these things. None of us have anything to offer to God. None of it's because of our good works and our good deeds and our good life. It's from the perfect life of Christ. And so grace establishes us. Why? Because we learn our insufficient. We have nothing to offer God. Think about this way. You know, when you look at a person, uh, it's so easy to judge people outwardly. So you got two people that come to faith in Christ. And one we find out is a millionaire. A millionaire. A millionaire hears the gospel, they're very successful in business, they have a big inheritance, whatever, they've got millions of dollars, they repent of their sins, and they come to Christ, and it's just a glorious, glorious day. Next to them is another person that's a million dollars in debt. They owe a million dollars. No, they owe two million dollars because their business failed, they had all these decisions, and they're deep in debt, but they too received the Lord Jesus Christ. They repent of their sins. You've got the millionaire, and you've got the person that's two million dollars in debt. You know what happens? It would be very easy for us to say that, you know what, the millionaire's got it better than the person that owes money. And that would be looking at people outside of the grace of God. Because I don't care if you got a million bucks or you're a million dollars in debt, you are insufficient. You do not have the sufficiency that's needed to live a life that pleases God. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't, we, we're so quick, oh, you know, the guy with money, he's got, he's got it much, so much better. No, you, you don't know anything about their life. They're both in the same place, utterly spiritually bankrupt before God. Oh, oh by the way, 
(laughs) This story wasn't about them, it was about you. We are utterly spiritually bankrupt before God apart from the grace of God. It doesn't matter what your standing might be today. God has made us sufficient. It's his ability. He's made us sufficient so why? We can then go and we can be ministers preaching the same thing. When you start relying upon your own good, your own good works, you walk away from the grace of God. You no longer abide in Christ and you're very unstable and very vulnerable because you know your failures. We might know your failures. God knows your failures and he responds with the forgiveness of sin. So all these things happening in your life, you know what they're doing? They're causing you to consider your insufficiency and your inability, things that are outside of your control. The medical doctor that says, here's your diagnosis, and there's another blow to weakness. The difficulty with your wayward child, another issue you have no control over, a sign of weakness. The divorce, you didn't want it, you still don't want it, but it happened nonetheless, another weakness. The job loss, the the rules and regulations that are placed over, they're all designed to bring you to a place of weakness. You remember Paul our friend who wrote this book, he came to a time in his life where he just had enough, I believe. He came to a time in his life where the Bible declares, and I paraphrase for you, the Bible declares that he responded to a very difficult situation in his life. He referred to it as a thorn in his flesh. He referred to it as something he just, he was done with it. So what does he do? He cries out to God. Not once, not twice, but three times. He asked God to remove it. I think if you were Paul, you'd ask God to remove it too. I wonder how many prayers of removal are among us right now. And that's, Ed, that's right where I'm at. I've been praying for God. And you know, there's a, lot of diff- there's a lot of debate on what this thorn was. Could it be a medical condition? Very possibly could be, some believe it was an eye disease, uh, maybe malaria, and it could have very well been a disease that was just messing up his body. Some believe that this thorn was actually people. It was a people problem that Paul was always followed by these false teachers that undermined him, ripped him off, lied about him, uh, went into the churches behind him a few days and disrupted the church and it just caused him great, great pain. Maybe it was both, who knows what exactly it was. But it was so bad that the text says, this is 2 Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 12, the text says that he thought the devil sent it. He thought it was from the devil. That's how bad it was. And so he cries out and he wants it to be taken away. And the answer from Jesus was pretty clear. The answer to Paul was, no, I'm not taking it away. Paul, you're going to live with this. You're going to live with this. But as you live with this, you're going to learn from this, right? You're living with something right now. You're also going to learn from it. And he says, you're going to live with this, but you're also going to learn. And this is what he's going to learn. My grace is sufficient for you. Because my strength is made perfect in weakness. I really love how John Corson, Pastor John, writes on this. Let me just quote from him because he says it much better than I ever would. Let me quote. The father says, you want me to take away the pain and to solve the problem and to get you out of the situation. But that's not what you need. You need me. 
And the very problem you're seeking to get away from, the very situation you desire to get out of, is the very one that's causing you to talk to me and spend time with me and depend upon me. You'll be stronger when you're weak because you have no other choice than to draw strength from me. You'll do better when you're weak because you'll have to rely upon me, end quote. So let me show you. Turn over to 2 Corinthians 12 and let me show you the summary that Paul comes to. He finally comes to a place about this thorn where he declares how he takes pleasure in these things, how he's learned to receive them, how he's learning that his weakness is actually God's strength. Notice with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 in verse 10. And listen to what he says. I'm going to repeat, take pleasure just for emphasis. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. I take pleasure in needs. I take pleasure in persecutions. I take pleasure in distresses. I take pleasure for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, some of you reading, reading along there want to stand up real quick. Wait a minute, Ed, you missed one. You missed one. You didn't read that one. I'm going to read it now because it's a familiar word that maybe you've never noticed before. Paul says, I take pleasure in reproaches. Later to the Hebrews, Paul says, follow Jesus outside the camp and bear his reproach. It's going to be a painful journey, church. It's going to be a challenging journey. It's going to be one fraught with perilous turns left and right, warfare like you wouldn't see, but you're going to learn through the pain, through the difficulty, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because grace brings stability to your life. Those of you that have taken things into your own hands, that didn't bring stability, did it? It made things worse. Those of you that ran back to the bottle made things worse. Those of you that went back out to that lifestyle made things worse. Those of you that screamed and yelled and got violent made things worse. Those of you that shut down and lived a life of silence made things worse. It's so much better just to live in the grace of God and let his strength be your strength. It's really, really hard to experience the strength of God when you're establishing, this is what I deserve. You don't want what you deserve. That brings no stability. You know what you and I want as followers of Christ? Grace. Because grace enables me to have stability no matter what. His strength is made perfect in Ed's weakness. It's the only way. And in the midst of all this, we're gonna develop it later, but in the midst of all this, come back to Hebrews with me, he says, in the midst of all this, have you made these decisions? You're bearing the reproach of Christ. It's very difficult, very challenging, very hard. And, and yet God's getting you through day by day, week by week. I had a brother last night come up to me, give him his whole story again. I knew him, but he had moved to Florida. He came back. I know his family. He's sharing his testimony. But one of the things he wanted to tell me is, he looked me in the eye and he said, you know what, Ed? I just got my nine-year chip in the most excellent way. And it was nine years ago that I personally met him when his brother James brought him to this church because his life was at the end of the end of the end unless something changed. 
And the brother embraced Jesus Christ, repented of his sins, and now nine years. You know what? You know how significant nine years of sobriety is. I was so encouraged. I look him in the eye. You go. You know what? The Lord, He has blessed you with His grace to keep you sober all these years, and He hasn't brought you this far just to drop you. And God has a great future in store for you as you embrace. As you embrace nine years, nine months, nine weeks, nine hours, 54 minutes of this Bible study. No, 46 minutes of this Bible study. As you endure, God has great grace for you and it will bring stability in your life as you are the church. And notice in Hebrews it says, we give that sacrifice of praise We continually offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. It's one of the reasons we gather together. It's one of the reasons why you sing in your car on the way to work. It's one of the reasons you sing in the shower. You're giving that sacrifice of praise. It's one of the reasons why you sing songs you don't want to sing. I remember a few years ago, my life was in much deeper crisis than it is now. Pastor, we a popular song back then, Pastor Ian was leading us in, was a song that had lines like, break me and mold me and shape me. And I'd sit right over here. And I remember one time going, no, I'm not going to sing that. I don't want to be broken anymore. I'm tired of it. No, I'm not going to sing that. And I'd say under my breath, Ian, stop singing that song. And yet I'd be surrounded with people I could hear to the left and to the right. They want to be broken. They want to be humbled. They want to be shaped. And whether I realized it or not, it was encouraging me. I didn't want to sing that song. I've sing it today, but I'm sure there'll come a day where I don't want to sing it. But it's a sacrifice of praise, isn't it? It's a sacrifice of praise. It is a sacrifice on my part to say, it doesn't matter what I want. I want what you want, God. And I'll sing that song. Because that's the work that you do in my life. You're breaking me and shaping me and molding me so I might be more Christ-like and more usable in your kingdom, God, not for my own goodwill, but for yours. Good stuff from the Bible. I love it. I love this section. Uh, Maybe we'll finish next time. Maybe not. We'll see how it goes. So, Father, thank you for the privilege of your word and the ability to continue on with the stabilizing force of your grace. Perhaps some are still unconvinced But God, I trust in your spirit to convince them, to convict them, to bring them about where they surrender their life to you wholeheartedly for all of eternity. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.